Bernard Herrmann's lush score for The Ghost and Mrs Muir, a romantic fantasy directed in 1947 by Joseph L. Mankiewicz. Set in early Edwardian England, Mrs Lucy Muir is a young widow, haunted not by the spirit of her late husband, but by the ghost of an old sea salt, Captain Gregg, in whose former home she is now living. Adapted from a novel written by Orr A. Dick, the nom de plume of Irish-born author Josephine Leslie, the ghost of Captain Gregg is initially hostile towards Mrs Muir, but over time, they warm to one another and eventually fall in love. The film ends with Mrs Muir herself passing away, and the manner in which Mankiewicz delivers this moment seems to foreshadow the penultimate scene of Stanley Kubrick's groundbreaking, and still breathtaking, 2001 A Space Odyssey. The bulk of Mankiewicz's film covers the early years of Mrs Muir's widowhood, but in the last stage of the film, Mankiewicz condenses the years so that Mrs Muir has aged considerably by the time the film comes to a close. It ends with her sitting in her preferred armchair, drinking from a glass of milk. She loses consciousness, the glass falls from her hand and shatters on the floor. Captain Gregg appears and Mrs Muir, now reborn to her youth, steps up from the lounger and they walk away into the mist. And now you'll never be tired again. Come, Lucia. It wasn't the last time Kubrick would find inspiration from such an unexpected source for such a crucial moment in his films. In Barry Lyndon, for the sequence where Barry seduces Lady Lyndon, he sourced Max Offel's adaptation of Stefan Zweig's novella Letter from an Unknown Woman, where Lisa Stauffer is pursued by dilettante pianist Stefan Brandt. I've seen you somewhere, I know. I followed you upstairs and watched you in your box, but I couldn't place you. Let us consider The Shining. In Victor Sustrom's 1921 picture, The Phantom Carriage, a terrified wife locks herself into a room to protect herself and her child from her maniacal husband who tries to break down the door with an axe. Two years earlier, D.W. Griffith's Broken Blossoms had a deranged father battling Burroughs wielding a hatchet to chop through the door behind which his petrified daughter Lucy was hiding. Yes, there is a corresponding event in Stephen King's novel, but study Kubrick's handling of it and shot for shot, it resembles both films. Here's Johnny! The ritualistic orgy in Eyes Wide Shut, that bears a resemblance to the pop video for Laura Branigan's 1984 worldwide hit, Self Control. Directed by William Friedkin, it is people wearing cloaks, ornate masks and writhing in stages of undress. But perhaps Friedkin was referencing the basis for Eyes Wide Shut, Arthur Schnitzler's Traum novella. Road to the Stars is a 50-minute feature made in 1957 by Soviet director Pavel Klushantsev. Released one month after the launch of Sputnik 1, Road to the Stars may not hold the same plot points as 2001, but it does share some important technical decisions. The design of a rotating circular space station and how to depict zero gravity. While 2001 is a seminal work, Kubrick adopted the same technique of suspending his actors on wires 
in order to simulate weightlessness. But enough of where Kubrick found inspiration. Here is a visionary director who has found inspiration in Kubrick. When you look at all of his films, the craft is impeccable. But the way he told stories was sometimes antithetical to the way we are accustomed to receiving stories. He said, why does every story have to be told the same way? He would tell me the last couple of years of his life when we were talking about the form. He kept saying, I want to change the form. I want to make a movie that changes the form. And I said, well, didn't you do that with 2001? He said, just a little bit, but not enough. I really want to change the form. Spielberg offers an interesting point. Beyond its groundbreaking special effects, the Stargate sequence, the rotating sets, and the front projection with retroflective matting, 2001 broke new ground by being so vehemently enigmatic and demonstratively ambiguous that it refused to yield to traditional storytelling. Even in light of such groundbreaking scripts as Pulp Fiction, Memento, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, and No Country for Old Men, if you were to present 2001 as a screenplay to a script analyst or studio executive, you would likely be dismissed for not having written a recognisable protagonist and missing that element, offering no inciting incident, motivational goal, internal conflict, and subsequently discernible character arc and narrative closure. With little or no clear plot, whatever theme you may have tried to develop remains completely buried because you have abandoned traditional narrative. However, if we look hard enough at 2001, we will see that it contains several of those elements, only not in the explicit manner audiences, analysts and critics have come to expect. It takes a while, but after a few full starts, David Bowman, played by Keir DeLay, emerges as the protagonist, albeit a rather docile one. Which means, paradoxically, the active role belongs to the inanimate computer, HAL. No matter, because Hal, voiced by Douglas Rain, has a motivational goal, which is to oversee the safe transportation of the crew to one of Jupiter's moons. But then it emerges that there is an internal conflict, and Hal also has it. The computer tries and fails to reconcile contradictory instructions, and as a consequence, almost all of the crew are killed. In response, David shuts down the computer, and it is he who then undergoes the great character arc journeying beyond Jupiter and the infinite, bringing his consciousness into a space and time beyond his understanding. At which point we secure our narrative closure because we are now back at another dawn. But since 2001 does not clearly signal those plot points, it is only through repeated viewings that we come to appreciate what it was doing and how it was doing it. Here is Martin Scorsese on the value of reviewing Kubrick's films. You come across certain kinds of films that um, make you look at life a different way, that make you look at being human a different way. They touch areas that you don't want to touch sometimes, provoke you. And then there's that rarest of films where when you see it continually over years, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years, you still see more in it. And what's even better is that if you're making pictures, you go back to this well, this source, to learn. Unfortunately, given the nature of their trades, critics are not often afforded the time to view and review and hence reflect properly on a film. Such deficiency resulted in 2001's dismissal upon its release 50 years ago. No less authorities than Andrew Saris rejected it as a thoroughly uninteresting failure, 
Joe Morgenstern called it a crashing bore, and Pauline Kay labelled it the biggest amateur movie of them all, tossing the entire effort into the bin by branding it trash masquerading as art. Here is Christopher Nolan. What Kubrick did in, in 1968 is he simply refused to acknowledge that there were any rules that he had to play by in terms of, of narrative. And I think any filmmaker being inspired by that, as so many filmmakers have been, they carry with them this idea that movies can do anything. And therefore, it's incumbent on us as, as filmmakers to try and push whatever, whatever boundaries we can and, and not be you know, beholden to a, to a theoretical rule set. What is always worth remembering, though, is that despite the inordinate amount of time Kubrick was afforded by MGM president Robert O'Brien, two years development, filming and post-production, by the time A Space Odyssey was premiered in the spring of 1968, a full 12 months behind schedule, Kubrick was so rocked by its critical reception that he insisted he be allowed to re-edit the film ahead of its national release eight days later. But far from a panicked hatchet job, Kubrick surgically removed almost 20 minutes of expository dialogue, additional spacewalks, an entire sequence after Hal's demise, during which Mission Control explains what went wrong with the computer, and finally an explicatory voiceover, which almost inevitably had given the film a quasi-documentary tone, that sat entirely at odds with its dialogue-free and hence enigmatic sequences. As a consequence of those omissions, 2001 became a film that demanded to be watched. That was the moment where David returns with the remains of fellow astronaut Dr. Frank Poole, played by Gary Lockwood. And that is the moment where David is lying on the bed, just before he sees the monolith. Obviously, watching the film is one thing, while listening to it is another. Because, just as Kubrick took out 20 minutes after its Washington premiere, mere weeks before that, he had decided to ditch in its entirety the score he had commissioned from Alex North, and in its place used the already existing compositions of Richard Strauss, Johann Strauss, Grigory Leggetti and Aaron Kachachurian. North had already collaborated with Kubrick on Spartacus, a score for which North earned one of the film's six Oscar nominations. Re-engaged by Kubrick late in 2001's post-production, North found this collaboration to be a nerve-wracking experience. Learning that his music would not be used was disappointing enough, but matters got worse because North's contract meant his music would never be released. Decades passed, and then despairingly, the original master tapes were erased when the Anvil Studios where the recordings took place closed in the 1980s. North died in 1991, but two years later, fellow composer Jerry Goldsmith, recovered North's original handwritten score and re-recorded the work so it could finally be heard by the public. It is a very strange exercise to extract Ligeti, the Strausses and Kachachurian and in their place, edit North's music back into the movie. Yes, it is interesting, but Kubrick's decision was the stronger one. Another strong decision was his choice of music. In the hands of another director, 
selecting already existing orchestral music would probably have leaned towards Holst Planets or Joseph Haydn's 1777 opera The World of the Moon, which told of an astronomer who falsely believes he's been transported to the satellite. But Kubrick's vision sought a different soundscape. Played one after the other, the quartet of the Strausses, Ligeti and Cacciaturian would likely be inharmonious. But it is the sheer unexpectedness of the way Kubrick threaded their sonic structures along his celluloid of startling images. Well, it's like he somehow managed to get all the planets in alignment. After 2001, Kubrick rarely commissioned original music for his films, preferring instead to choose or radically rework already existing music, a technique that would later influence everyone from George Lucas and Woody Allen, right along to Quentin Tarantino and Richard Linklater. Yes, there were original compositions used in The Shining, Full Metal Jacket and Eyes Wide Shut, but whether it was commissioned or previously existing, Music was a consistent and crucial energy in Kubrick's films. The way he utilised it is another example of what set his films apart. After a faltering start to his career in the 1950s, by the time he established himself as a strongly independent Hollywood filmmaker in the early 60s, the decade was already witnessing European filmmakers re-evaluating the way music, and in particular sound, functioned as a storytelling tool. Kubrick duly took note. When the US scientists go to the moon to investigate the monolith unearthed in the Tycho crater, Kubrick decided for the very first time in the film to shoot with a handheld camera, which means we see this event as the scientists see it. And then that visual destabilization is wed with the diegetic aural disturbance, so we hear what the scientists hear. By the early 1960s, filmmakers such as Godard, Bergman and Bresson were examining music, sound and silence as an ironic effect, not necessarily distancing the audience from the story, but crucially encouraging us to reflect and engage with the content in a different way. Today, some people only need a few bars of the Blue Danube, the Thieving Magpie, Zaraband or the Jazz Suite and immediately they are picturing 2001 A Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon or Eyes Wide Shut. But it wasn't just Kubrick's preference for pre-existing music. It was his insistence for frequently using almost all of the selected composition. The plan to keep the music playing fed into the visual design and tempo, which in turn resulted in thematic, dramatic and emotional continuity. Unlike other directors who use music as a needle drop to merely position the story's time frame, or worse, create false energy, Kubrick structured entire sequences around the selected music and then edited it to their rhythms. Now consider how the likes of David Lynch, Spike Lee, Sophie Coppola, Wes Anderson and Paul Thomas Anderson use music to layer in irony, establish character or link several scenes. Here is Christiana Kubrick revealing how her husband correlated the images of 2001 to pre-existing music. He was cutting the spaceships and all, and he says everything in nature turns. Everything turns. If it doesn't turn, it's not alive. So all the spaceships turn. The world turns. 
and he said, I know it would sound old fashioned to do a, a waltz, but that's what they're doing. And I think I can really cut it like that. Late in 1967, Christiana Kubrick was listening to BBC Radio 3 when Ligeti's music was broadcast. She alerted her husband to come into the living room and listen. And it was from there that the seed was sown in his mind that a non-commissioned music could be better for the 2001 soundtrack. It not only worked better, Kubrick identified the way in film, music, specifically non-verbal music, fuses with the images to bypass the conscious mind and play directly on the emotions. Which means, it's time I stopped talking. <laughs> 